are in part seven of our series, Walking Through the Book of James. We got this week, we're going to close it out next week, and I just think this has been an awesome, awesome uh, series that we've been going through called Discovering Practical Christianity. I'm going to need you to have a Bible and then the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. If you're watching online, make sure that you fire up the app that can allow you to fill in the blank and all that stuff. Now... I want to begin by expressing that in many books of the Bible, they were intended to be read all in one shot, and there's rise and fall, and there's a lot of repetition. So you go, didn't we talk about that once before? The answer is yes. Repetition allows the same theme to continue to be caught. When we stretch it out over eight weeks, it sounds like we're just kind of beating a dead horse, right? We keep talking about it, and you're like, man, you're really kind of laying on this, right? Well, one of the things that James talks about a lot is the problem of pride. So we're going to be talking about pride, but we're going to turn our attention a little bit more to the antidote, and that is humility. But I do want to acknowledge, yeah, the, the very essence of so many problems in mankind have to do with pride. Pride means that you believe that you are a more valuable person than someone else. It's not just that you're better at something, you're a better quality of person than somebody else. And you would never admit that, you believe that. Those are very, very different. You may not ever say, wow, I know that I'm better than everybody else. But the way that you act, the way that you think, the way that you process, clearly you do. And, and because pride is so insidious, it's so sneaky, it comes into some of the weirdest places. And when we're trying to fix it with humility, one of the biggest problems is we're not even sure what humility means. Like, I mean, we, we have a lot of guesses and we try a lot of stuff, but I'm not quite sure we're nailing it. So what I want to do is take a little bit of time and talk through in our introduction here and then let Pastor James take it from there. But I want to talk a little bit about pride and humility. So first thing that we need to understand is that pride against people is sinful because of the harm it can create, right? If I believe that I'm better than you, I'm going to treat you a certain way. And usually that is less than the best. But pride against God has nothing to do with harming God. You're not going to harm God. He's way too big for that. So the sin is not harming him. The sin is actually greater. The problem with pride against God is you're challenging his authority. And that's a big deal. For a crea created being, for a creature, to challenge the creator means that you're living in some type of la-la land. Right? I mean, you, have you ever thought about how weird it was that Satan thought, I can take him? Have you ever just thought through that? Like, you see God in his glory, and you think you can do his job. You think you can unseat him from the throne. What gave you that idea? As absurd as that sounds, what in the world are we doing as created beings, standing up before God and saying, I know better than you? So strange. So we're going to start kind of unpacking. How do we get into that mindset? I mean, it is so bizarre. Now, humility is tricky, but we're going to start with a general definition. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but less about ourselves, all right? It's a posture of looking elsewhere. 
and not just focusing on how amazing we are, right? So I've, I've always taught this concept. I'm going to kind of train it into our culture. I believe that every believer should operate in what I call confident humility, confident humility. What this does is it simultaneously allows us to appreciate the glories God built in us, in no way diminishing his creative power, but at the same time, not making it all about us. Here's what I mean by that. Let's think about the idea of why we should walk with confidence. The human body is extraordinary. If you do any study in science, you're going to find that there are things going on in our system, in our design, that our science cannot even keep up with. We don't even fully understand it. If you ever do an examination of just the human eyeball, there's stuff going on in that that we're still tripping out about because it's so amazing. Well, in addition to all of that... God has made human beings with the capacity to have a portion of the dimension of their being that the Holy Spirit can come and inhabit. That's incredible. That's a dimensional reality. Then we add to that that if we give our lives over to Jesus Christ and he rescues us, that means that we are called a new creation. We are ignited and all the systems light up when we find our identity in him. He comes and dwells with us and we become children of God. That means we are walking with power, walking in authority. If that is the case, should we not walk with our heads high and our shoulders back? Of course we should, but it's not about us. And that's the tricky part. You see, what humility is not is degrading of self. For you to walk around and go, I'm a loser, I'm this, I'm that, humiliating is not humility. Because what you're ultimately doing when you degrade yourself is you're saying, God, you're a bad shepherd, you're a bad creator, and you don't know what you're doing. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, does it not? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says that we are God's masterpiece. So the idea that you would be thankful and amazed by what God has done in you, giving you gifts and talents and abilities, putting anointing upon you, that idea should truly amaze you and you should feel strong and confident, not degrading. It is not, humility is not allowing your inner critic to tear you apart. Right Now, there's some personalities in this room. Y'all tend to lean towards the I'm awesome side. And then there's some of you that lean, you know, lean towards the I'm terrible side, right? So I want to talk to the little folks there that are feeling terrible. Your inner critic, that constant flesh need to tear yourself down, whether or not you're grabbing what people have said about you, whether or not you are just letting the enemy whisper about you, I'm telling you right now, the answer is no. Those dialogues do not get to dominate your mind. You do not get to just constantly chip at yourself and I'm not good enough, I'm not the, hold on a second. Do you realize that pride can show up either in arrogance or despair? They're both pride. Because if you say I'm awesome or you say I'm miserable, you still said I. You all tracking with me? 
This whole idea that we kind of go, well, as long as I go into the sad side of things, I'm good from the pride area. That is incorrect. What we need to realize is that humility is not only not degrading oneself, but it's also not faking it. You guys in church culture, we, we get really good at putting religious veneer on things, and one of those is humility. We're actually not great at humility, but we know this. In our Christian culture, our number one bar, our number one standard is Jesus Christ. He's actually what we're named after. And we know he was humble. So we know we need to be humble or it's going to start looking weird and people will call us out for it. So we need to somehow be humble, but we're not quite sure what that means. So we start faking stuff, right? Let me give you an example where I come to church and I actually think I'm pretty amazing. And as I come in, I'm like, well, you know what I'm going to do? If everyone knows that I know that I'm amazing, they're going to be mad at me. So I got to do something that makes me look humble. So we come in and go, you know what I'm willing to do, Pastor? I'm willing to set up chairs. Oh, are you? Yeah, I'm willing to clean the toilet. Oh, well, that's, that's really nice. You look like an arrogant guy cleaning the toilet. Because <laughs> we have this idea that as long as I say I do lowly things, I don't have a problem with pride. And you're like, no, you're just prideful while you're doing lowly things. That doesn't actually help. Here's another one. This is something that we play a game all the time with. Pastor, what an incredible message today. Oh, the Lord came. He was present among us. Wait, 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 hold up. What did you just say? You just got like all weird and stuff. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that I don't want to take any glory. It's all God. It's all God. Here's what's funny. Later on, I'm telling my wife, man, I crushed it today. And you're like, okay, you can't just like say Christian stuff, right? And you're just like, oh, I can't receive it. Glory, glory, glory to God. Glory to God. And you're like, no, come on, man. I can see it on your face, right? So it's not faking it, right? It's not degrading of self. Humility is an honest assessment. If we knew what God knows, we would be humble. It only makes sense. Like, I totally understand pride in an atheistic mindset. I totally understand pride in a secular humanistic mindset. It just makes sense. If we're all accidents, if it is purely evolutionary, we all crept out of the primordial ooze and we just kept advancing and advancing and advancing and there's no God, then it's survival of the fittest. And I'm allowed to say I'm more evolved than you or I'm stronger than you or I'm better than you. All that makes sense. But the minute you put God in the mix, pride sounds stupid. Because when there's a creator who is high and lifted up, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, when you have that, why are you impressed with you? At that moment, shouldn't you go, yep, I'm not that big of a deal. Because God's there. So for Christians, I feel like pride should kind of go, yeah, that doesn't really make sense to me. God's here. The only way you can allow pride to take root in your heart if you're a Christian is if you are only spending time looking horizontally and comparing. You understand what I'm talking about? Like I can look and go, well, God, he's on a whole nother level. So I'm not gonna look that way. I'm not gonna look vertically. I'm gonna look at you. And quite frankly, I'm better than you at a whole bunch of stuff. So therefore, I feel better about myself because I'm only looking at you. The comparison game is garbage. 
It's not healthy. It's not right. And we all fall into it, right? Either to condemn ourselves or to feel prideful about ourselves. But the fact that you're spending so much time staring at other people is weird. The Bible says we should gaze upon heaven and glance at man. Our eyes are to be fixed firmly on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Bible says. And when you're looking at Jesus a lot, you're really not that big of a deal. Does that make sense? There should be an automatic humility. And you're like, okay, totally get it, Pastor. I'm just struggling with kind of the practicalities. Okay, so I want to talk for a little bit. Uh, remember I told you that some of us lean towards the I'm awesome category and some of us lean towards the other one. I want to talk to the I'm awesome people, right? Now, you can't admit that, but your spouse knows it. If you're an I'm awesome person, let me give you a practical tip on how to handle humility. And that is this, you're allowed to estimate yourself and go, I am awesome. Now, your next step is to elevate everyone around you to awesome. Because where pride is a problem is when you're above everyone else. But your job, if you truly believe that, you need to elevate everyone else. How would you do that? It looks something like this. Wow, I'm really gifted. I have a lot of talents. Immediately, the conversation stops and says, oh, you have gifts, you have talents. Oh my goodness, I wonder if, I hope your gifts aren't better than mine. Oh, okay, I'll get over my insecurity. Now you begin to look at the gold in everybody around you. You're not debasing them, you're raising them up. As opposed to degrading yourself, you're exalting the people around you to say, you have gifts, you have talents, you have abilities. Man, if I even took my eyes off myself for a second, I would fall in love with the beauty that God has created in you. It, oh my goodness. If I have talents, I wonder what your talents are. And we start to raise everyone around us. Here's another practical tip. Once you look through the lens of what I'm about to say, it should force humility, and that's, here's the lens. Every talent, ability, or anointing you have, every resource you have was given to you for God's glory and to help somebody else out. What that does is it takes it from a pride to a responsibility. And honestly, if you take it seriously, you almost don't want to know more about your gifts. Because every time you find a new gift, you got to immediately go through the process of going, how am I going to use it for God's glory? And how am I going to use it for other people? If God gave you finances, you automatically are on to minister to other people. If God gave you the ability to share wisdom, you're automatically on to share wisdom with people. If God gave you the ability of hospitality, you're on because people need to feel like they're loved. Every gift you have, every resource in your pocket automatically is a responsibility. Why would you be cocky about that? It just means you have more to do. This stuff are little practical ways to re-rack our head into humility. If we are wise, the greatest blessing we can have in this life is the hand of God upon us. If he has all power, if he has all resources, what would be greater in this world than having the hand of God upon your life? I'll tell you this, pride will keep that hand distant and humility 
will allow God to draw near. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you and on the app is this. The shortest road to blessing is humility. The shortest road to blessing is humility. Let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 13. James chapter 4, verse 13. If you're brand new to the Bible, turn it all the way to the right. You're going to find it in some of the smaller books at the end there. Remember, the Bible is a compilation or a collection of 66 books. You're going to find one of these called James all the way to the right. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You'll be turning to around page one, uh, 1012. 1012. By the way, side note, if any of you do not have a Bible at home, the Bible under the seat in front of you is yours to take home. It would be much better being read by you than sitting in a quiet church when we all go home. Amen? So if you need a Bible, that one is yours. Please don't worry about it. That's the whole point, okay? Um, now, here we go. James chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to read through a couple passages. We're going to talk about it. Here we go. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and we will trade and make a profit. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Hmm. What's he getting to? Quick show of hands, how many of you are planners? People that like to make lists, people that like to organize out, people that like to ruin vacations. Okay, <laughs> praise God, all right. Thank you for raising your hand. All the rest of you are lazy, disorganized people. <clears throat> now, I am not a natural planner. I had to become a planner for two reasons. One, I'm married, <laughs> and I wanted to remain so. The second reason is that I work for a large organization, and, and so it forces a certain amount of understanding of planning. Now, when I talked about pride coming in the most insidious ways, in some of the most subtle ways, a lot of times it will show up in planning. Now, what's intriguing about it is whether or not you're a natural planner or not, you've got a plan, and you go, well, I don't understand. How does pride get involved in planning? Here we go. Planning means, practically, the organizing of the future based on resources and agenda. That's all it means. Hey, tomorrow we're going to go to the store. That means you have an agenda, you have a time frame, you have some resources to do it. Cool. That's planning. Nothing wrong with that. Totally understandable. Most planning, however, is built upon the assumption that we know what's really going on. It's built on the assumption we can make it happen. And it's built on the assumption of what we want to happen. You're like, well, what would that look like? I'm going to give you two examples. One of them I'm going to call an innocent example. The other one I'm going to call a wicked example. Let's start with the innocent one. Okay, so we're going to talk about me scheduling a family vacation, right? So as I said, uh, I'm not a natural planner, so I ended up learning how to do that. And when I have to schedule for the church, 
we end up having to move a bunch of things around on the church calendar based on whether I'm going to be here or not. So I need to give like my vacation dates way in advance, right? Because if I'm going to do this, it sets a chain reaction on all the other ministries and everybody has to be able to have time to plan. So I do this stuff way in advance. So let's say I, I decide that I'm going to go on a family vacation this next year in 2023 and we're gonna go to Santa Cruz. My family loves Santa Cruz, right? I find the one thing interesting about Santa Cruz, I feel like it has a tremendous amount of skunks. I'm not sure what the problem is, but, but I feel like somewhere some animal control people should be involved in this, but it's just the, the air has a different scent to it. I don't know if you've heard, if you, if you've heard that. Okay. But boy, are they chill. Anyway, I don't know what that has to do with skunks. So, <clears throat> So we're gonna go. To, we're gonna go to Santa Cruz, right? And and in that planning, I automatically when I talk about family vacation, I immediately mark down a good job, Lance, right? Because I, I check it off by going, oh look, you could be a workaholic, but you're not. You're actually spending time with your family. I mean, you're working really, really hard. So why not take some of those funds and use them to have your family together, right? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent idea. You're focusing on them and you're putting them first. This is great. Lance, you did a good job, buddy. Now, I don't think that any of you would go, well, that is terrible. How dare you plan a family vacation? So you're like, I don't see the problem. Here's the problem. I didn't pray about any of it. As a matter of fact, I rarely pray about vacation planning. I mean, I know how to do this. Whether I should or I shouldn't, the fact that I didn't is rather telling. Why am I so comfortable living my life without checking in with God? That's weird. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You've gone through the week and you look back and you're like, I didn't even pray this week. How in the world did you think you could live without checking in with God. I'm always surprised and horrified by my autopilot. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Man, I'm just doing what I normally do, man. I go to the store, I go home, I'm not doing anything fancy. And you go, okay, so you didn't check in with God at all on this stuff. Well, it wasn't a big deal. I check in with God on important things. Oh, so you know what's important. Well, kinda. I mean, it's important to me. Oh, that's what you meant. It's important to you. But that's the interesting thing. I never checked in with God about how to love on my family and whether or not the vacation was a good idea. I never checked in with God about the money that I'm spending on it and is that really what he wants me to spend the money on. I'm, as a matter of fact, I didn't check in with God on all of it. I patted myself on the back of, you did something good. How do I know that? I didn't check in with him at all. And I do that about a lot of stuff. And it's embarrassing. So just think through your life. How easy is it for you to just do your stuff? You're not doing anything wrong. You're just not checking in with God at all. Is that a little weird? Because the only way you could do that is if you truly think you're in charge. And that is where we run into a problem, right? Okay, let me give you a, a secondary scenario that I would call a, a, a wicked example. Because um, this gets a little bit more in line with what Pastor James was talking about, which is bad business practice, wicked business practice, all right? So let's say, for example, that you and I start a business, right? We're going to start what's called a communications technology company. 
communications technology company, something that has to do with technology, something that has to do with interaction, right? Okay, now this is going to be totally hypothetical, um, but let's say you and I figure out that we can make a couple adjustments to our product, and we will actually get more money in our pockets and more money to our investors. Once again, what are we in business for? We're in, in business to try to make money. We have a couple ideas. Now, they may not be the most ethical, but... I can guarantee you they're going to get us more cash, all right? And that's kind of what we're here for. All right, so here's how we're going to do our job. So what we realize is that if we can get people addicted to our product, they won't put their phone down, right? We're like, man, that would be sweet because then they're always interacting with our product. And then we examine psychology of humanity, and we kind of use that against them. Like we're like, hey, I know how brains work. We learn how to kind of ping their desire cortex and manipulate their emotions. Now, once again, this is hypothetical. Nobody would do this. Now, <laughs> we listen in on their conversations. Like we're literally listening in on their conversations. And we realize that we can honestly manipulate things and intentionally give them ads for what they just were talking about, right? I mean, this is, you know, we're not 1984 George Orwell. This stuff doesn't happen. But anyway, <laughs> we increase temptation, we increase debt, we increase dissatisfaction, and we, and we increase addiction. But we made money. The problem with that business plan is not that it's brilliant, and it is brilliant. Once again, from a secular atheistic view, I should be able to manipulate you any way I want if I'm smart enough to do it. The problem with this business plan is it doesn't take into account God's agenda at all. It puts product before people. That is unacceptable. It takes advantage of the ignorant. It takes advantage of the weaknesses of our flesh. The goal was never to ruin people. The goal was to make money. But while we made money, we ruined people. And that is unacceptable. Why would somebody do something like that? Why would somebody have that business practice? Well, I can tell you one reason for sure. Because you think you can. The very idea that you think that you have the right to create a business plan that would harm anyone else means that you think you're in charge. You clearly didn't check it against God. Where God was like, yeah, we don't, we're not hurting people. That's not kind of what we do here. But you had enough pride to say, I can do what I want to do. And there's something deeply wrong with that. James was continuing on in his problem with what he saw in the church. He's like, it's not even like you guys are just thinking this stuff. You're saying it out loud. I'm gonna go make money and so and so. He's like, not only are you like verbally agitating God, but you're role modeling really messed up stuff. You keep talking in a prideful way and other people are learning from you. Okay, real quick, parents, I wanna talk about a parenting thing real, real fast. And you're not gonna do this intentionally, it's gonna be accidental, but watch this. If you spend all your time talking to your kids with this language, and here's the language. Hey kids, Mom and I were deciding that we were gonna go ahead and go over here and we were gonna do this and everything. And when I was thinking about your school, you know, I was thinking it's probably the best idea to do da, 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 da. That's how normal life sounds. Here's the problem with it. God wasn't anywhere in any of that. There was no verbalization of, wow, your dad and I prayed about it and we were feeling like, or you know what, actually, if, 
you know, to be honest with you, we would love for this to happen. We're not quite sure how the Lord's going to think about that. Or you never involve the Lord's name in any regular stuff. And what you role modeled was that God is only supposed to be considered in churchy things and desperate things. But he is not anywhere else in your life. Well, my kids know I'm a Christian. They know, they know how what I'm thinking. No, they don't. They will grow up like you to be what's called a practical atheist. What's a practical atheist mean? It means you talk Christian, you think Christian, but there's really no difference in lifestyle between you and somebody else that doesn't know Jesus. I remember hearing this phrase uh, from, there was a book called The Practical, Athe uh, the Practical Atheist, and and I remember thinking through, and I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful. There's a bunch of ways I'm like that. Like, I really have intentions and I have thoughts, but if you're going to look at the practical outcome of what comes out of my mouth and what happens in my actions, there's a significant amount of it that looks really similar to my non-believing neighbor. They're operating without God, but I'm supposed to be operating with God, but our lifestyles look awfully similar. We make the decisions the same way. We go through the same decision matrix. We handle our business the same way. We go to the same business gurus. We read the same business books. We, do you understand what I'm saying? And you start looking at yourself and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's interesting. There's no real difference between this and this. But here's the problem. We're Christians. Before you are anything else, I don't care what your identity marker is. Oh, I'm an American. No, 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 before you're an American, before you are of any gender, before you're male or female, before you are whatever you wanna define yourself as, you are a child of God. That is the most important thing about you. It is by which everything else centers around. And Christians have different rules that apply. We have God in our lives. We have God as the center. Everything should take shape around the cornerstone fact that God is real. Are we living like that? And once again, I'm not trying to say that the problem here is that Planning is a problem. I'm talking about the assumptions that are underlying our planning. So what do we practically do if we realize something's amiss? How do we fix it? The most practical way to honor the Lord in our planning is to first just be mindful of who he is and who we are in relation to him. That means that before we make plans, we check ourselves and examine our motives. Before we make plans, we check in with God, even if it's a quick check-in. Before we make plans, we remember we're working with his stuff on his timeline. If even those basic steps are done, it will filter through and transform how you plan. I don't think it's much deeper than that. He said... <clears throat> Don't just go around talking like you're in charge. This is where people are like, well, pastor, you're making a big deal out of nothing, man. I'm not going to keep using the phrase, if the Lord wills, right? You know, I'm going to go watch Netflix, if the Lord wills, you know. I'm going to get a venti, if the Lord wills. <laughs> okay, I never said you had to be an idiot. <laughs> and talk like that. That's really irritating. So don't do that. What I said was, there's a spirit behind it of humility and you're just checking in with the Lord, right? And 
Pride is so sneaky. Please don't let it creep in. And then he throws in this serious warning and, and like a re-rack. He's like, who are you? You're a mist. Have you guys ever been to like a coastal town where in the morning there's a little bit of like fog on the mountain and then it burns off? He's like, yeah, that's you. Do you see any reminders of it? Nope. Guess how many people have been on this planet? Tons. Guess how many we remember? Not many. Man, you are here today and gone tomorrow. Who do you think you are? What you? Oh, I lived 95 years. You think you're a big deal. You know how long we've been here? You know how long God's been doing stuff? He has no beginning and no end. And you think in your 95 years, you're smarter than he is. And James just blasts everybody. And he's like, you're nothing but a vapor. Dang, James, you're mad. All right. Look at verse 17. I find it intriguing. James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Wanted to highlight something. In context, it means James has taught them a whole bunch of stuff, and he's like, guys, you know the truth. I'm going to hold you accountable to it. But I want to use it as an application for a moment. And, and, and try to hang with me here. Defining some things as sinful is a bit elastic. What do I mean? To one person, one thing can be sin, but to another person, it may not. And the reason why is that many opportunities for sin, especially sin in what we call gray areas, the sin is not in the actual conduct, but in the meaning the conduct has for them in their context. You're like, ah, oh, so blah, 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 blah. Okay, what did I mean? <laughs> here's an example. Scary movies, are they bad or good? Because here's what's intriguing. There are some people, and they love scary movies. They love scary movies for a couple reasons. One of them, they're looking at it as an art form. They're looking at it like reading a book, right? We always say, oh, read a book, read a book. That's a really great idea. Well, it's really an adventure. So they're looking at an intense adventure, and as a matter of fact, they kind of love the dopamine hit, like a jump scare, right? They're like, ah, you know, and, and then they love the fact that it completely ruined the nighttime in their house, that they're now in a little blanket hiding, walking through, and they're sure they heard something, right? So, but that whole thing is super fun to them because it's like a, an energy shot, and it's, oh, I love scary movies. Okay. But then there's some people, images stick too hard. There's some people that are too sensitive. There's some people that have been traumatized. There's some people that have backgrounds, and all of a sudden, they start seeing demonic stuff on the screen, and it starts affecting them, and it is not good. Okay, so is it wrong or right? It depends on the context of the person interacting with it. It's a different reality. To an alcoholic, a bar is dangerous. To a non-drinker, it's community. Interesting. Is it right or wrong? Here's another example. Let's say you're super into fashion. Anybody into fashion around here? Really into fashion? We're gonna judge your shoes. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, cool, cool, cool. Now, let's say you're really into fashion. You like to design out things, and you love the idea of, of like, groundbreaking fashion. So you, your dream is to go to Milan one day in Italy, like, where the, the hub of fashion comes out. And you love watching things online, your feed and everything, and it's, like, runway models, and they're coming out with different forms of floss. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and, and, and you're analyzing the floss. You're like, that is some shiny floss, you know? And you're kind of looking at everything and you're like, this is really impressive. What is the groundbreaking stuff? And you're staring at the floss. And then there's a bunch of other people who because of bondage and lust 
miss the fashion. They're not looking at the fashion at all. They're looking at the model, and she is now a consumable. So let me ask you, is the runway righteous or wicked? Depends on the heart engaging with it. Does that make sense? What we need to do is we need to grow up and mature to the place where we realize that God doesn't deal with all his kids the same way. There's certain things you've been built for, and God says, that's totally cool for you. Other ones, he's like, kiddo, that's not for you. And when he says that's not for you, you don't get to go, but they do it. Just because you can justify something doesn't mean you should. Stop comparing. He didn't talk about your friends. He talked about you. The other thing is when he tells you not to do it, you don't get to run to all your friends and say, you can't do it either. Okay, hold on. They got to answer to their dad too. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is a wisdom and maturity as we grow up to be able to realize that how God made us makes some things dangerous for us that may not be dangerous for somebody else. Does that make sense? All right. Now, let's finish it out, James 5, 1 through 6. He's got kind of one big point that we're going to close with. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James is a little tense right now. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you've condemned and murdered the righteous person that did not resist you. Wow, what is wrong with this church, right? Murdering people, stealing wages, is that really happening? Well, yeah, some of it is practically happening. But notice he said rich people. Remember I talked to you a little earlier in the series about the fact that rich people are a category of wealthy people. God is not talking about all wealth. God brings wealth and we are to steward it well. He's not talking about all wealthy people. He's talking about, whether Christian or not, bad guys with money. Usually it's because they got their money in a bad way or kept their money in a bad way. That's actually what rich means. So anytime you read in the Bible, it mentions rich. You're like, oh, we're in a category of people. Now notice these rich, they're literally like killing people. And why would they do that? Well, back in the day, they could have been a master and they owned slaves and they just killed them. There was no recompense. There was no accountability. Could have been that they accused them. They didn't like them for whatever reason, their employees. So they accused them in court. And since they were the wealthy ones, they would win and they would put those people to death. When he was talking about keeping back wages, they worked all day long. They're crushing their backs. You know what they should earn, but you also realize you could probably get away with paying them less. So you pad your own pocket. God goes, you think I miss this stuff? So let me pause for a moment. Side note, if we're going to talk about application of this, I want to talk to everybody who is a boss. If you are able to set the wages of your employees, you have a high responsibility, and here's why. God does not gauge wages based on your scale. He does it on his scale. Just because you can pay less doesn't mean you should. Every Christian, or I'm going to suggest every boss, will be held accountable 
for how they treat their employees. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's me, that's everybody. You don't get to do what you can get away with, you do what is right, amen? Amen. All right. So let's talk about this. You're like, well, it's good because I'm, I'm not a business owner. I've never killed anybody that was righteous. You know, what does this have to do with me? All right. Let's talk about the practicality of it. Have you ever had someone in your group, they did something awesome at work, and you took credit for it? You know what you just did? You just slaughtered their ability to receive the credit they deserve. Have you ever held somebody else down because you were insecure and couldn't allow them to come up through the company? You're ruining their career. Any time that we say, well, that doesn't work for me, and we start operating off of a, I'm in control, I get to make all the decisions without a concern for God, somebody's gonna get hurt. And if you ever wanna truly tick God off, be a person of power and take advantage of somebody that doesn't have any. And he will come in hot, right? Now, we're gonna close this thing out and you're like, okay, so, man, that was, that's crazy. Like, I get it. I have some issues with pride and, and I need to be more humble and I'm working on, okay, okay, pastor, what do you want me to do right now? Okay, here's how we're gonna close out. If you have, if you're good on your phone, I want you to take your phone out. We're going to write a list of five things. If you are not a phone person, I want you to just take out a piece of paper and something to write with, or if there's an envelope in front of you and a pen in the seat in front of you, you can write this down. And I want all of us to do this because this is for God. What we're about to do is for God. This is not for your own personal notes. This is actually for God. What we're going to do is what's called a silent praise session. You're like, I've never heard of that. I know, I just made it up. This is called a silent praise session. And what we're going to do is that I'm going to praise God up here as we close out. But what you're going to do is instead of all shouting out at the same time, because some of us have a hard time vocalizing, you're going to write down five things that are extraordinary about your Lord. And we are simultaneously going to lift up. And I'm talking about whether the enemy can look on your paper and go, yep, that's true about him. Whether or not the angels look at your paper and they're like, yep, that's true about him. You are glorifying God with your list. We are simultaneously gonna grab hundreds and hundreds of people, everyone online, everyone here, thousands of people, and we are all going to praise God at the exact same time. Why? Because that's an antidote to pride. It's not about what's amazing about you. It's what's amazing about him. And the more we can get our eyes on him, the better we're gonna be, all right? So let's go ahead and do this. When I start praying, I'm the one closing my eyes. If you close your eyes, it's hard to write. <laughs> so remember, I know I'm breaking the rules, all right? I'm gonna close my eyes. You guys can keep writing. Here we go. Let's go ahead and just praise the Lord with what you're just writing and thinking about. Let's do this. Heavenly Father, we praise you right now, and we praise you, God, for the way that you set things up in such a way that we would come to a time like this to glorify you. We praise you for your foresight. We praise you for the ability to know ahead of time, to plan in advance, to dial in something for right now. We praise you, God, for the way that you rescued us from wickedness, from addiction that we never thought we could get away from. We praise you for a new hope and a new vision and a 
new power. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the love that you had that sent your one and only Son to this world that we might live. We praise you, Jesus, for being the one that would die on the cross and give us the righteousness of your life and your heart. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one that is our comforter, our guide, the one that walks alongside us, the one that provides the power. We praise you, God, for the way that you've watched over our families and our children and our parents and our siblings. We praise you for the accident we should have been in, but we didn't because of your grace. We praise you for your mercy. We don't deserve it, but that's why it's you and why your heart is so good. We praise you, God, for being the one to hold our hands in the times that we cry, hold our hands in the times that we are scared, that God, that you would be our comforter and our strength, our fortress in time of need. We praise you, God, for the way that you have loved us in such a deep fashion that we have never been the same. So God, in this morning, we, in the name of Jesus, want to magnify and exalt and glorify your name that you are great and mighty and we are here to serve you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.